these can double as a yarmulke as well. <laughs> Shalom. I end up with so much stuff in my pockets all the time. <clears throat> well, good morning. It's good to be here today, isn't it? Good to gather as a church together and worship in the house of the Lord. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. Um, as we open up Acts chapter nine, we pray that you would that you would just speak to us. That your your truth, the truth of your word would penetrate our hearts, Lord, and that you would have your perfect and complete work in each one of our lives. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we get into Acts chapter 9, we're going to kind of we're going to be in this passage for quite a while, and, um, and we're introduced really, kind of the second time, but, but really starting to get introduced to um, one of the main characters in Acts. And so I wanted to kind of lay a little bit of the groundwork here. Um, in the region of Sicilia, there in central Turkey, kind of on the Mediterranean Sea, there was a city called Tarsus. <coughs> and Tarsus in this time was a very wealthy, very influential city in, in that region. And the city was known for its, <clears throat> for its universities, for its culture, for its, for its education. And as in many of kind of the major population centers there in Asia Minor, there were um, pockets of of Jews, and they had their own little communities here. And within this particular Jewish community, there was a devout Jewish family living there. And as we are going to kind of see throughout the scripture, this they were, they were a substantial family in the area. The father was a Roman citizen. The father was a Pharisee, so he was an expert in the Jewish law. Most likely, this was a, a highly educated family, very conservative, very proper, a very, a very religious family. In, in our culture, they would have sort of been that, that, that wealthy kind of upper crust of society. Um, sometime around 5 AD-ish, sometime within a couple years of the time Jesus was born, this family had a baby boy. And being that this family was from the tribe of Benjamin, they named their baby boy after the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin. So they named their baby Saul after, after the first king of Israel, King Saul. And so Saul, he grows up in this, in this cultured college town, most likely went to university there. He is very well educated. <clears throat> we see in his writings that he often quoted the, the philosophers and the poets of the day. And at some point, this Saul, who by all accounts is a brilliant young man, he was sent to Jerusalem to receive his, his religious education. So he goes to Jerusalem, <coughs> and, he, uh, 
excuse me, I've still got this cold. And he goes to what is essentially law school there, right? He goes to, to the Pharisaical school. And he sits under this man, this, this well-known rabbi, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, he was one of the prominent rabbis of the whole region during that day. He was sort of a professor of Jewish law. And um, interestingly, Paul, Saul is one of the, the few people in Scripture that we have a, a written description of. Somebody in the early church, an extra-biblical source, it isn't biblical, it's not gospel, right? It's not the inspired Word of God. But an extra-biblical source describes, the, um, describes what Paul looked like. It says that Paul was a man of small stature, right? So he was a short guy. It says that he had a bald head, crooked legs, and in a goodly state of body. I take that to mean that he was bald, bow-legged, and a little bit chubby, right? He was in a goodly state of body. <clears throat> says that he had blue eyes with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. So he's got a big old nose and a unibrow. I mean, you're, you're kind of getting a description of a good-looking dude here, huh? I'm going to help you understand this. Go ahead and close your eyes. Close your eyes. Imagine Gargamel from the Smurfs. That's pretty much the description of the Apostle Paul here, right? That's kind of <laughs> what he looks like. But it says something else in the description that I think is noteworthy. It says that he was full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. So the description says sometimes he just looked like this dumpy little guy. But sometimes when he was proclaiming the gospel message. He had the face of an angel. And I love that. I think it's just a cool description. Later, when he's writing to the church in Galatia, <coughs> Paul says that he advanced in Judaism beyond his peers. He says that he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so you're starting to get a, a, a picture of this guy, you know, very, very devoted, very intelligent, as you can see from his writings, very well educated, goes to the best schools. As a Pharisee, he most likely had, had entire books of the Old Testament memorized. And remember later as he's writing his epistles from prison, he's quoting the scriptures. And he doesn't have a Bible in there as we talked about last week. You didn't just have a Bible with you. He didn't have scrolls with him in the dungeon. He had it all memorized. It was, it was all written in his heart. Remember the first time we encounter Saul in Acts, he's holding the coats for the mob as they're, as they're getting ready to, to stone Stephen. And so we see a little something more about him. Apparently Saul, he, he didn't want to get his hands dirty. You know, he didn't want to actually pick up rocks and throw them at Stephen. So he's sort of overseeing the whole thing. And I don't know, maybe, maybe he threw like a girl. You know, I, I have a little issue with that myself. I can, I can relate to that. But he didn't throw the rocks. <clears throat> and he seems like maybe he was sort of a kind of uppity, rich kid. You can't imagine him with, 
manicured nails and a little, a little pink button-up with a cardigan over his shoulders. Right? That's sort of, sort of the kind of guy Paul seems to be here. And we saw in Acts chapter 8 that he began to severely persecute the church. And here in chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. <coughs> but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul here, we find him utterly consumed with eliminating these followers of Jesus. Utterly consumed, just, just rabid, foaming at the mouth, wanting to destroy the church. And remember, Jesus, for some three and a half years, had traveled throughout Israel, teaching, preaching, proclaiming the good news, working miracles. <clears throat> and it would appear that Saul was in Jerusalem at the same time because this, <clears throat> this stoning of Stephen happened just a couple months after the crucifixion of Christ. So most likely, he would have had the opportunity to see and hear Jesus. Maybe he never actually met him, but he was well acquainted with Jesus anyway, with his teachings. He'd, he'd been exposed. But Saul, like so many of the Pharisees, was just, he was overzealous, crazy for the law. And he wanted to eliminate anything that posed a threat to what he believed. It says in the King James Version, and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. And you get this, this, this picture, you know, he's sort of uttering threats with every breath, all that he is, right? Breathing out threatenings and slaughter. You get an idea of just the, the intense nature of his hatred for the church. So much so that he goes to the high priest. And remember, the high priests at that time were the party of the Sadducees. And he was a Pharisee. I mean, in our, in our world, it would be the Republicans and the Democrats, right? They were <clears throat> diametrically opposed. And so Paul, this conservative, he hates the Christians so much, he sort of goes and conspires with his enemies to, to work against the Christians. And something interesting I learned, um, David Guzik notes this. The high priest mentioned here at this time would have been Caiaphas. In December of 1990, in Ossuary, an ossuary is like a, just a little, little box full of bones, right? In those days, they would take you and they would put you in the grave until you decomposed. And when all that was left with the bones, they would gather up the bones and they would put them in a little box and they would just store the box away. <clears throat> and so they discovered this ossuary, this box of bones in Jerusalem. And on the box, the name Caiaphas was inscribed. And it was positively ID'd to be from about the time of Christ. And inside of it, 
Doctors determined that the man was approximately 60 years old. That's kind of interesting to me. That we may have the actual bones of this guy mentioned in the Bible. You know, it's the right time frame, the right age, the right location. You know, it may or may not be him. <coughs> but it reminds us that the Bible, that it's, that it's true, that it's real, that it's, that it's history. It's not the Smurfs, right? It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not <coughs> Jack and the Beanstalk or, or whatever. That, that it's a real account of what happened in those days. And so Saul, he gets this permission letter to arrest the followers of the way. The way is what the church was referred to at that point. Of course, it's a reference to John, um, John 14, 6, right? And Jesus said, I am the, the way, the truth and the light, right? And so the believers at this time were referred to as followers of the way. It wasn't until Acts chapter 11 when, when in Antioch we were first referred to as Christians. <clears throat> and as you know, the term Christian, it means, it means little Christ. And, and it was intended originally, it was, it was an insult. Oh, look at you, little Jesuses. Look at you, church boy, right? And, 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 but, but as time went on, the Christians said, well, that's, that's a good thing. We want to be we want to be little Christ. We want to we wanna be like Jesus. And so we sort of adopted the name for ourselves as a, as a badge of honor. So anyway, Paul, Saul, he gets this letter, and he begins traveling, sort of in this radius of about 150 miles around Jerusalem, arresting believers, eager to kill them. Right? Saul, in his mind, he's on a mission from God, out imprisoning Christians. And we don't know how long this was going on for. Months, possibly even a year or two at this point. But as we'll see later on in the text and in his, and in his, his epistles as he's describing what happened, it's clear that he had enough time to do much harm to the church of God. Right? And it's while he's on one of these missions. And I want to note this before we go on. Saul here, he's very sincere, isn't he? Right? He's all in. He's <clears throat> absolutely committed to this, to this mission that he's on. He's very sincere. And so often we talk about people who, who, who believe differently than we, and we'll say, oh, you know, he might not be a Christian, but he's a good guy. And he's so sincere. So what difference does it make if you're sincere and you believe something that's wrong, right? Sincerity isn't, isn't the test of orthodoxy. Sincere, sincerity doesn't make what you believe in to be true. Right? You can be sincere and be completely wrong. So the second thing I want to note here is, you know, we will disagree with people. We'll disagree with people of other faiths. We will disagree with people of our own faith who maybe hold some different doctrines that we do. And I think we can look at Saul's example here sort of in the negative and be reminded that we need to be careful never to go on the attack. 
and never to, <clears throat> never to persecute those who disagree with us just because they disagree. We need to be careful that we don't look to do harm and to tear down and to attack and to lie about people who believe differently than we do. And I think this is especially pertinent right now in regards to politics, right? We have never been so divided as a, as a country politically. And we need to be careful that while we always want to speak the truth, while we always want to stand up for justice, while we always want to be true to what we believe in, we need to be careful that we're not doing it in a harsh, unloving, attacking sort of way. And we need to be careful that we don't get sucked into spreading untruths because they help build our side up. And the Bible says we will be accused of those things. And that's fine. Just don't let it be true. Let People can accuse you all they want. Just make sure their accusations don't have any merit. Now, verse 3, <clears throat> as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone on him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And verse 5, he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told to do what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So see the picture here, right? Saul is on the road to the city called Damascus, and he's got his whole little sheriff's posse with him, right? He's got all these other guys that he's deputized, and they're, <clears throat> and they're rolling in Damascus, ready to, ready to arrest the followers of the way. And all of a sudden, he just, he just gets lit up, right? This, this, Light from heaven just shines down on him. And it's so powerful, it's so bright, that, that it knocks him to the ground. And Paul is describing what happened in Acts 22, and he tells us this happened during midday. And then in Acts 26, he informs us that, that this, this light that shone down on him was brighter than the sun. So imagine that, this blazing light that's, that's brighter than the midday sun there in the, in the desert in the Middle East is shining down on him and it throws him to the ground. Now, I don't know if you've ever been like knocked down in a totally unexpected way. If you've ever just been like blindsided. Maybe you're playing football when you're a kid and somebody comes at you and tackles you from an angle that you weren't expecting. Or, you know, I remember sometimes when we go snowboarding and and you'd catch an edge, and, and you'd be on the ground before you knew what happened. You know, and, and sometimes you know, you're, you're, you're there one minute, you're just kind of going about your business, and the next second you're looking up at the sky trying to figure out what happened. That's, 
That's the situation here. That, that, that's where Paul is. He's just been knocked down to the earth. And he's trying to figure out what happened. And, and, and he hears this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? Now, I, I don't know for sure. This is definitely speculation on my part. But I'm guessing that Saul already had an idea who this was. I think he already had an idea who was speaking to him. I think he just maybe wanted just to make sure, just to kind of confirm it. And the voice replies, it's me. It's Jesus, the one who you're persecuting. Now, Jesus, Yeshua, was a very common name in those days. You may remember, you know, Joshua in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, it was Yehoshua. And so the name had kind of changed a little bit, and in Jesus' time, it was Yeshua. But basically, it's what today would be Josh. Right? We all know a few Joshes at least, right? You know, and, and consequently, remember Barabbas, who was supposed to be crucified and Jesus took his place? Remember what his full name was? Barabbas. It was or Jesus Barabbas, right? His name was Josh too. There were four high priests around Jesus' time who were also Yeshua, who were also Josh. Right? So it's a very common name. Despite that, when, when Paul says, who are you? And he says, it's me, it's Jesus. I don't think that Paul wondered which Jesus it was, even though he probably knew quite a few. Right? Is this, is this the Jesus down at the uh, post office? Right? Is this Jesus at the liquor store? Which Jesus is this? No, he knew. And imagine the scene. Saul, so secure. Saul, so sure of himself. Saul, so self-righteous. Breathing slaughter against the church. And Jesus... God shows up and he speaks from heaven. Imagine that moment of realization. That moment, that instant, when you realize that everything that you believe, that your whole worldview, everything that you're putting your hope in, is wrong. Have you ever had that happen? When you believed in something so completely and, and so certainly, and then you found out that you were wrong about it. You know, maybe that was you with Christianity. Maybe you were certain that, that Christianity was just a fairy tale, that, that religion was just a hoax, it was just a crutch for, for, for simple, weak-minded people. And then maybe in one moment, the Lord revealed himself through his word or through the witness or through nature or through that word written on your heart or whatever the case may be. And just in that moment, you had that epiphany and you realized that Jesus is real and the Bible is real and, and everything you were putting your hope in before that was a, a fraud, it was fake, it was a lie. That's what's going on right here. And, and, and I have to think a little bit about Judgment Day. Right there on Judgment Day, there are, there are going to be so many people who were, who were so utterly convinced that they were right. 
They rejected Jesus. They, they chased him away. They, they denied his existence. And, and all of a sudden, they're in judgment day. In an instant, they're going to look up. And they're going to see Christ in, in, in all of his glory. And in, in an instant, they're going to realize that they were wrong. In an instant, they're going to realize that the gospel message was true. That Jesus was God. That he really did come down to earth and, and lived a sinless life and went to the cross and, and died a criminal's death. He bled to, to, to pay for our sins. They're going to realize that it was all true. But it's going to be too late. It's been said that everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's, it's only a matter of timing. It's only a question of when. We can do it now, on our own, or we can do it then, when it's too late. But every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this is sort of what's happening here. Jesus reveals himself. And he says, Saul, it's me, the one that you're persecuting. Now, is Saul persecuting Jesus at this point? No. Where's Jesus at right now? Where's he speaking to Saul from? From heaven, right? He's there at the right hand of the Father. Who was Saul persecuting? church, the bride of Christ. It's like this, <clears throat> you know, I, I love my wife. I, I, I treasure my wife. In a couple weeks, we'll be, uh, we'll be celebrating our, our 25th anniversary. And, um, and um, you know, we were supposed to be going to, we've been planning for years, we were going to go to Italy for our 25th anniversary, and then Darn Hannah came along and messed up all of our plans. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, if, if I'm away and someone mistreats my wife or hurts my wife, if someone says or does, does something hurtful to her, I, I take that very personally. It's like they did it to me. Except way worse, right? If, if someone cuts me off and gives me the bird in the car, I don't care. If someone's rude to me, if someone insults me, whatever, I don't care. Idiot, go about your business, <laughs> right? But if someone does it to my bride, it makes me mad. It infuriates me. I, I, I kind of dwell on it, right? And it's the same idea here. Jesus says, listen. If you mess with my girl, if you're messing with my bride, it's like you're messing with me. And I think we need to realize that because sometimes we as believers have a tendency to, to attack other Christians. Sometimes we go attack other believers who, who might believe differently than we do. And when we attack other believers, I think Jesus can take that very personally. It's like we're attacking him. Something to think about. In Acts chapter 26, Paul gives us a little more information. 
he says that Jesus was speaking to him in Aramaic. Aramaic was sort of a, a modified form of Hebrew. It was sort of the, um, the trade language of the day. It was sort of like a pidgin Hebrew. And so Jesus, speaking in Aramaic, says, Why do you kick against the goads? <coughs> this was a kind of a common expression in those days. Again, remember, this is a very agrarian-type society, right? And um, you know, a lot of farmers were around. And farmers would have oxen, and they'd have goats and camels and sheep. And, and if they wanted to move their animals, they had this, this long stick with a, with a sharpened point on it. And they would just give the animal a little poke, and they would start moving. But if, if the animals didn't want to move where they were directed, right? if they were rebellious, if they were being stubborn, sometimes they'd resist, and they'd push back, they'd kick against the sharp stick. And when they kicked against the sharp stick, it, it didn't hurt the stick. It didn't hurt the guy who's holding the stick. All they did was end up wounding or harming themselves. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here. He says, look, when you resist me, when you fight against me, you're not hurting me. He says, you're hurting yourself. And this is interesting. I think that we can kind of extrapolate from this expression, it seems like the Lord had been moving in Saul's heart a little bit already, right? I think the Lord had already been speaking to Saul's heart, and maybe even from the very beginning. Maybe from the first time that Saul heard the teachings of Jesus, he felt that little tug. And maybe all of this persecution was him trying to convince himself and to convince everyone else around him that he didn't believe in Jesus. Trying to convince himself that he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus says, look, I'm trying to speak to you. I'm trying to direct you. I'm trying to get your attention. Why are you kicking against the goads? Why do you continue to resist me? You're only harming yourself. He says, Saul, you need to get up, you need to go in town, and then I will show you what to do next. <coughs> so Saul gets up, and we see in the text that, he, that he's blind, that he couldn't see anything. And it could have been the result of the bright light. It could have been something that the Lord did for a reason. It could have been a combination of those two things. We don't know. But whatever the case is, he can't see. He's blind. And so his companions, they, they, they lead him into town. And, and he seems like he's in shock a little bit. And he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Now, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if being in the presence of God shocked him, re realizing that that, that he had been working against God all this time. Maybe he's pondering what he had done to the church and God's people. You know, maybe it was, maybe the Lord was speaking to him, revealing himself during these three days, or whatever. But Paul is just kind of sit there, he's sitting there kind of alone in a room in the dark, contemplating the things of God. And we're going to see next time that, that Paul has an encounter with this man named Ananias. But I want to point this out. Jesus, at this point, 
doesn't reveal the whole plan to Saul. He just says, I want you to get up, and I want you to go to town. And it wasn't until Saul did that, that the Lord showed Saul the next step. (coughs) And that's typically how it is, isn't it? The Lord doesn't give us a 10-year plan usually. And sometimes he does for some people. But usually it's the next step or two. And as you're obedient and faithful in those steps, he reveals the next couple steps. God isn't going to reveal what he has for you three miles down the road until you're faithful in the next few steps. And this is such an important principle for us. And I know that I've talked about this many times before, but I think that it bears repeating. I think it bears repeating until we all, number one, understand it, and number two, we apply it. Remember it says in Psalm 119.105, Thy word as a lamp unto thy feet and a light unto thy path. Right? He's not talking about a 14,000 lumen spotlight. He's talking about having a lantern or a candle that you're carrying with you on a path. Right? And, and, and how that works is if you've got that little lantern, is all it shows is a few feet in front of you. And if you want to see further beyond that, you have to keep walking. And as you walk forward, that that light gets pushed further forward. And and that's exactly the principle that we're talking about here. right? We have to be obedient where we are now for the Lord to reveal what he has for us next. Two two things I want to close with. One's kind of trivia a little bit, and the other's a little more important. And the trivia part, I, I mentioned it a few weeks back, but I think it's worth kind of talking about again. How many of you guys have heard people teach that the Lord changed Saul's name to Paul? Anybody heard that taught? A lot of us have, right? That's not true. Absolutely not true. Never says that anywhere in the Bible. The Lord changed Peter's name. Never says anywhere that he changed Paul's name. Remember, Saul of Tarsus had dual citizenship, right? He was a Roman and he was a Jew. He grew up in Greek culture. Greek was very likely his first language. And and names tell us a lot about people, don't they? Right? If your name is Pedro Sanchez Ramirez, there's a good chance that you're of Hispanic background, right? If your last name is Kim or Park, there's a good chance that you're Korean, right? If your first name is Muhammad, there's a good chance that you're from a Muslim country. If your first name is Billy Bob, there's a good chance you're from Louisiana or Oklahoma or someplace like that. North Florida, right? Saul, his full name was likely Saul Paulos, right? And Paulos is Greek for Paul. When Saul is in Jerusalem, when he's dealing with the Jews, he used his Jewish name. 
And when he went out in his ministry to the Gentiles, when he went into Greek territory, he used his Greek name. It's kind of like this. You know, when I fly into Belize, there are two immigration lines. There's the, the, the foreigner's line and there's the Belizean citizen's line. And I pull out my Belizean passport and I go through the Belizean citizen line because it's quicker, it's easier. When I leave the country, I use my Belizean passport because I don't have to pay the $40 exit fee that foreigners have to pay. But when I'm flying back into the U.S., I keep that Belizean passport in my pocket and I pull out my U.S. passport because that carries different benefits and different rights. <clears throat> it's sort of the same idea here. Paul used his Hebrew identity more, emphasized his Hebrew identity more when he was among the Jews. When he's among the Gentiles, he emphasized his Hellenistic identity more and used his, <coughs> his Greek name. And Paul talks about that when he's talking about being all things to all men, right? The second thought is this, and this is kind of what we're going to close with. Imagine if a guy like this were in the news today. It's some guy in the Middle East, and he's been going around killing Christian pastors, killing Christian ministry leaders. This guy is going from city to city, dragging believers out of their home and throwing them into prison. You know, and maybe he's in a, <coughs> in a country where, where that's legal and acceptable to do that. And then suddenly, this man who's been carrying on this practice for years becomes a believer. He becomes a follower of Christ. What would you think about that guy? Oh, he's a fake. He's a phony. He's just trying to trick Christians. Right? Paul went through that. No one trusted Paul. The church didn't trust Paul for a very long time. But think about this. What did people say regarding Paul before his conversion? Do you think the church gathered and prayed for Paul? Kind of doubt it. Probably prayed against him, right? Lord, strike him dead. Lord, let the ground open up and swallow him. Lord, let him find a, not a herd, a swarm of locusts. You know, let him get bit by a snake, something. <clears throat> Take this guy out, right? He's gone too far. This guy, he's never going to come to the Lord. He's, he's too hard-hearted. He's too anti-Christian. This guy could never be forgiven. And that's how we think a lot of times, isn't it? But here's the reality. If anyone has ever gone too far to come to Christ, it was Paul, persecuting the church, his heart set on destroying the church, consumed with hatred for Jesus. But look at this. He has an encounter with Jesus. He has an encounter with the resurrected Lord. And everything changes. Everything changes. He goes on to write 13 or 14 books of the New Testament, depending on if you believe he wrote Hebrews or not. Right? It was either Romans to Philemon he wrote or Roman to Hebrews that he wrote. 
Half of the book of Acts is about him. Paul is absolutely the most influential figure in the church aside from Jesus. How did that happen? How did he go from breathing slaughter against the church to being a missionary and planting churches all over the known world and and writing half of the New Testament? It's grace. It's grace. That's what it's all about in Scripture. It's about the grace of God. It's about getting what we don't deserve and mercy, not getting what we do deserve. Right? Paul so eloquently talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And I like the King James. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things or become new. If a man comes to Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new man. He's born again. The the old things are gone. The old things have passed away. You know, we we so often can look at people and oh, <coughs> he's he's too far gone. She's done too many bad things. That person can never come to Christ. And that's how we see them in the flesh. But that's not how the Lord views people. Sometimes we fail to recognize what the Lord is doing in people's lives. Second, sometimes we look in the mirror. Sometimes we look at ourselves. And we say, you know, I'm too far gone. I am... I'm, I'm beyond redemption. I've sinned too many times. I've, I've rebelled against God too many times. I've fallen into the same trap of sin too many times. The Lord, He can't save me now. I'm, I, I, I'm beyond redemption. And the Lord says, no, that's not true. I want to make you a new creation. I want to give you a new start. I want to make you into a brand new person. Lord says, I want to I pick you up off the ground and I want to I dust you off. I want to clean you and I want to set you on your feet again. I want to set you back on the path. But so often we, like Paul, we kick against the goads and we resist and we fight what the Lord is doing in our lives. <laughs> and if that's you this morning, whether you're here in person or, or whether you're watching online. If, you, if, if you're kicking against the goads this morning, if you're fighting against the will of God in your life this morning, just stop. Stop doing it. Stop fighting God because it's not a fight that you're going to win. Stop fighting God's will for your life and surrender to Him. And allow him to begin that work of salvation in your life. And you know what? Maybe you're not looking for Jesus at all. You know what? Neither was Saul. Sometimes, sometimes the Lord begins to work and move in people's hearts. Like the Ethiopian eunuch that we saw last week. He begins to put a, a desire in their hearts and people begin to seek God. Sometimes the Lord 
makes the decision for us. Maybe, maybe you haven't made a decision for Jesus, but maybe he's made a decision for you. And if that's the case, stop resisting. Stop fighting. Surrender to God. Repent of your sins and be saved. Stop kicking against the goats and submit to God. Heavenly Father, you're a good God. You're a gracious God. A God of reconciliation, forgiveness, and second chances, Lord. A God of infinite grace and mercy. And Father, if there's anyone here who, who hasn't surrendered to you yet, Lord, if there's anyone here who's still kicking against the goads, fighting your will for their life, Lord, I pray that you would just convict them through the power of your Holy Spirit and draw them to yourself. Reveal yourself to them. And let that work of grace be done. We pray that in your name, Jesus.